If you've got a Bible, and I hope that you do, would you take that out? We're going to be in the, the book of Ephesians today. Um, we're going to do a few things this morning that are going to require to use your copy of God's Word, and then we'll put the rest of it on the announcement slides as we go through that. Uh, we are in the book of Ephesians. It's an epic and colossal view, really, of what it is uh, to be the church. Uh, it's written by Apostle Paul while he's in the prison in Rome, as you just saw in the video there. Uh, my wife and I just got to go about three weeks ago out west to go skiing, and, and it's the first time we've ever been able to do that. And if, if you're someone like us who, who goes, how many of you ski here, first of all? Will you raise your hand? Okay, not as many as I thought, so this doesn't... Sometimes you think things up in your head, and you think this is going to be a good illustration, and then no one in the church skis. Uh, assume that you did go skiing occasionally, and because you were in this church building, you would probably go to Ellicottville, New York, which is where we go skiing for the most part. And uh, the mountain there is, is large, or we thought it was, and we got really good at going down uh, that mountain. I grew up going there, and, and uh, the ski resort there at Holly Valley, and sometimes at Holly Mott and others. Uh, when you go skiing there, ultimately there's a different skiing conditions than there is out west. And so we got really good at skiing there, and then we went out west and were rudely awakened uh, that we were horribly undersized uh, compared to what's really going on in the rest of the world. And so uh, when we got there to, to California in Squaw Valley, it's where the 1960s Olympics was at, and it's just this gorgeous place, and, and so we got to be able to go skiing the first time that we went. Uh, the first day, uh, I was kind of leading, and we said, okay, we want to go and start on this hill, and eventually one thing led to another, and we got to the absolute highest point in the entire place, and that's where we decided to start going over the top. It was a huge mistake. Uh, there's only one way down from that point, and that's on your face, tumbling over and over and over again. And uh, we were in way over our heads. But when I say that this is a colossal view of faith and of Scripture, I think really we need to kind of have that mindset of what, what sometimes we have as our idea of what it means to uh, have faith in Christ and what it means to live out the God is so much smaller than perhaps what Paul would really be uh, implicating here when we look at the book of Ephesians. And it's a massive, massive concept. Uh, the city of Ephesus is a modern-day Turkey along the Aegean Sea. Uh, it's the largest cities in the nation at its time. It was the leading city in Asia Minor. And actually during that time period, a quarter of a million people lived there. Modern day, it's actually one of the most significant archaeological digs in the world from that time period. You can go there and, and see all kinds of different ruins that they're able to dig up. It's a very significant thing. There's a, a lot of the pieces and parts that they can put together. If you understand how archaeology works, I don't. But when you put all the pieces and parts back together, they can almost put the complete city uh, back together. In its day, it was a very important city. There was also an ancient harbor that came there, so you had a lot of commerce that came from that harbor. And uh, when people would come via boat, a lot of commerce and trade would come, people visiting from other nations, and they're all coming to this center. So then you can imagine them coming to this city of Ephesus, and if you've seen anything online or looked at it, uh, a lot of uh, that architecture has marble uh, walkways and stone path paths and different things like that. And as they moved around the city, you can get a feel for what was going on there, all these different people coming and going. One of the biggest archaeological finds that they've had was they dug up this 25,000-seat amphitheater. 25,000. Uh, last summer, I had a retaining wall that held up part of my shrubbery out in the front yard, and I had to re replace about a 15-foot section, uh, 7 inches, maybe 12 inches high of stones, the retaining wall. 
It took like all weekend to do that. And I don't know if you've ever, but the idea of doing something that's going to seat 25,000 people with that type of labor is beyond me. And if it gives you the scope of it, the, uh, the arena downtown uh, where the, the Sabres play, that's about uh, 20,000 people. And so something of that size and that scale, and that is where in Acts 19, that amphitheater is where the riot gathered uh, for Paul. They were angry at Paul, and you have this amphitheater of people, that many people, all uh, yelling and shouting at Paul and trying to get him thrown out. It was on his third missionary journey, and the city had hearty opposition to what Paul was doing and teaching there in the region. You'll also remember from the book of Acts that now Paul has been taken to Jerusalem, uh, taken by those in Jerusalem, and now he was arrested there in Jerusalem, and then he asked to be taken to Rome because he wanted to be heard by Caesar. So he appealed to Caesar, and ultimately to Caesar he is gone, and so now he is sitting there, he is awaiting trial. Because why? Because the Jews thought that he had completely betrayed Judaism with what he was teaching with this concept of Jesus Christ and of Christianity. And so he is there, he's in trial, and this letter is written in a place where uh, Paul spent considerable time in Ephesus and he's writing from a place that is very confined, a, a jail cell or, or maybe it's in a home but ultimately like, there, there's not a lot of space for him to work and so uh, the idea of this wide, expansive uh, uh, letter of the nature is almost inverse to, to where his actual situation was. He's either in prison in Rome or maybe in house arrest depending on exactly the time of when this is written but he is confined and yet he is writing about something so large and so expansive and he wants us to capture that. So it doesn't take on the instructional tone of some of the other letters that he has written. He's not writing to solve any problems or establish new guidelines for behaviors. He is writing from a different place, the place of the heart, of what he is dreaming for and the vision for what he would expect uh, the gospel to do as it's lived out in God's people doing God's work. And that's how we have to approach this letter. There are passages in this letter that we can just stop and like spend the day there. Uh, we're going to do some of that. This, we're going to break this up over a number of weeks and just spend some time on some of these passages. Uh, he's, willing, he's writing well beyond his chains, and he wants to figure out this. He wants us to figure out who we are in Christ. Uh, he's trying to appeal to the heart, and then ultimately, in doing that, he's looking for the truest you within the heart. Where, where do you stand before the Lord? Because your heart is the truest part of who you are. Ultimately, the word that you should hear as I'm sharing that is identity. Where is your identity? So I want to share with you that my life, myself, there has been a number of times, and most of you, if you're honest enough about it, that there has been some type of identity crisis. You're trying to figure out who is it that you are or who am I? I went to a Christian school up through the fifth grade and I got uh, a number of times got labeled as a troublemaker there. I was in detention almost every single day. I got really accustomed to that. I cleaned the chalkboard often and and, uh, got sent home a couple of times. Uh, I got suspended, or excuse me, nearly expelled, suspended then nearly expelled for some things that I did. And that was uh, in fifth grade. Like I, I was there through fifth grade and just... So I went from there, my parents transferred me over to the public school, uh, they wanted me to be able to do sports and music and a few other things, and interestingly enough, I, I went from being the troublemaker kid to being like uh, the shining star there at the school, and so there had to be, in my own defense, there had to be a little bit of pendulum swing, I think, at the Christian school. I don't think I was quite as bad as what they made me out to be, which is probably why I was in trouble in the first place, because I thought I was pretty hot stuff. Um, 
But I got to the public school, got involved there. Uh, I was uh, pretty quickly, because of my uh, education in the Christian school, that you've been more one-on-one, that type of thing, I got put into the accelerated classes. Uh, and, and, and you know, each year I was doing my science and my math and different things like that, a grade up, to where in high school I would be able to take college-level courses in that. And so what became really obvious, uh, basically in ninth and 10th grade and a little bit farther than that, was I was way smarter than normal people, and I was the dumbest smart kid in the class. I could not keep up with, with the rest of that class to save my life. They, they were so far ahead of me, and I was just barely getting through uh, those classes. And so it was really this identity crisis because I was trying to figure out where was it that I fit in and how do I fit in and how do I do those things. I struggled to keep up. I met Erin in high school. She's a soft, I was, I don't remember what we were. I was a sophomore and you were a junior, right? Okay, so she was also... Not also. She was one of the smart kids. I was not one of the smart kids. I have to clarify that. She was the signing star. She was loved by all of her teachers. She was great at sports and that type of thing. To the point that at Pioneer Central School, where I graduated from, my wife's face is literally in bronze on the wall at the school if you go there today. That's the type of student that she was. So please give her a round of applause to embarrass her. So because we were dating, I made it my, my life goal that in one year, because she was a year ahead of me, that in one year that I would be able to flip the table and actually be able to get my face bronzed next to her face, and we would be immortalized forever there at Pioneer Central School. Uh, I actually got a little bit closer than I would have anticipated, but I did not, uh, in fact, get my face bronzed there at the school. I considered going to Houghton College. Uh, Aaron was at Houghton College, so that meant that God was calling me there as well. And so I went to Houghton. I did a music audition, did pretty well in the music audition. And, uh, and I also went over to the track coach because I was uh, the star of our high school uh, track team as the pole vaulter. I had broken a lot of records as a pole vaulter. And I went there to the track coach and asked him uh, what he could do for scholarships and that type of thing. And he looked at my records and looked at some videos and he said, you know, really, uh, we would love to have you come and give you a scholarship uh, if you would wear a skirt and put on a wig. Literally said that because... I was not nearly good enough to be a college uh, men's pole vaulter, but I would do pretty good in the women's side of things. So whoever that coach is, I don't remember his name, but he's been fired. Yeah, okay, good, yeah. (laughs) Uh, So my options were to go to Houghton College or to go in the Marine Corps to be in the Marine Corps band, and I, I, uh, after that uh, warm welcome to Houghton, I, I joined the Marine Corps. And so uh, the Marine Corps, turns out, they're not really interested in shining stars. Uh, they, they want you to blend in with the crowd as much as possible. And so as I was getting involved there in the Marine Corps and, and got to the base that I was stationed at, there was a church off, off the base. And so I, at that church, uh, began, there was a couple of other people there in the church uh, with the same name as me. And so because the military didn't allow me to be a shining star, and I didn't know what my identity was anyway, at 18 years old, uh, 19 years old, I decided that I was going to go by my middle name, Milo Wilson. Confused my family, confused everybody I knew, but it was the only way that I knew how to kind of stick out and get my identity there. It took a while, but eventually it started to catch on, and I went by Milo Wilson instead of my first name, 
Nathan Wilson uh, because there was two other Nathans in the church and then on base there were so many Wilsons that I didn't want to be be one of the Wilsons that got called in and those type of things. So my wife's joke is that she married Nathan Wilson but had kids with Milo Wilson. (laughs) So my identity finally stuck. So your identity, who are you as a Christian? Who are we? It's a very important topic because accusations come against those who are truly born again every day. As genuine Christians, we have to ask the questions, who are we as Christ followers? Accusations about Satan as to what you have done or who you are come. Accusations from the world, from what the world calls intelligent people, but what the Bible will call foolish and ungodly men and women because they question who the Lord and Savior is. Foolish and ungodly scientists like Richard Dawkins, who comes uh, to the scientific endeavor, but he brings presuppositions, scientific presuppositions that basically say there is no God. It's a no-God philosophy, and it's not good science because there's this presupposition that infiltrates the textbooks that are taught and that are read. This week, that same prominent atheist Uh, He mocked Christians and he mocked uh, Muslims for the latest attack by extremists that killed uh, 72 Pakistani Christians. He refers to both parties, both the Muslims and the Christians, as having a God delusion. Basically, he's pointing out, hey, if you didn't have this whole God issue, maybe the two of you could get along. That's That's a problem. God calls that foolish and ungodly. Uh, they, they can confuse us Christians. Who are we? What does this mean? There's ungodly and foolish people like the Dalai Lama who would say there are many equal paths to Christ. Jesus is just, excuse me, to God. And Jesus is just one of those many equal paths. We start hearing these things. It confuses us about our identity. We don't know where to start. We don't know where to go from there. Who are we as followers of Christ? The genuine born-again follower of Jesus Christ has been given a new heart and you need to understand who you are in Christ. Today's passage addresses this very clearly. God graciously saved me. He brought me into His family. He adopted me. I have an inheritance in Christ. I am co-heirs with Him in heaven. This is the good news. This is the gospel. This is where our identity is found. Through the gospel, true followers of Jesus Christ have been fully united with Him personally and with God's global church corporately. God planned for the church from the beginning and he has let us in on it. So here's what we're going to do this morning. To start, we're going to go through the first 14 verses, uh, actually verses 3 through 14 in Ephesians chapter 1. It's actually one entire sentence in the Greek language. I don't read Greek. I wouldn't be able to do that for you here today. Uh, But it's one sentence, one large run-on sentence, as if Paul is trying to get all of these thoughts uh, put on there. He doesn't stop. He just hammers it all out. What I want you to notice here is the phrase in Christ or in Him or through Him. Uh, Paul uses these phrases ten times in this section and then actually in in the whole book of Ephesians he does it more than 40 times. So let's do something a little bit different this morning. Would you stand? We're going to read these first, this first section of Ephesians chapter 3. It's not going to be on your slides. I expect you to look at your own copy of God's Word. Beginning in verse 1, it says, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God to the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus, grace to you and peace from God our Father and our Lord Jesus Christ. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in heavenly places. Even as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world, we should be holy and blameless before Him. In love, 
He predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of His will, to the praise of His glorious grace, which He has blessed us in the Beloved. In Him we have redemption through His blood, through the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of His grace, which He lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of His will, according to His purpose, which He set forth in Christ, as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in Him, things in heaven and things on earth. In Him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of Him who works all things according to the counsel of His will, so that we who were first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of His glory. In Him you also, when you have heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, believed in Him, were sealed with the promise of the Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it, to the praise of His glory. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. Do you catch the richness of this passage as you, as you look and see that? An eternity passed before time began. The Father did some work for the believer. So if you, if you look in the past, this, the, the Father did some very serious work here for the believer. If you come to the present, the Holy Spirit, through His Son, Jesus Christ, uh, Jesus Christ has done work in the present for the believer. And then in the future, the inheritance is sealed by none other than the Holy Spirit and is sealed in a way that cannot be broken. So we're going to go back, guys, to the verse 1, uh, excuse me, chapter 1, verse 3, which said, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in heavenly places. We are made rich in Christ. Notice the blessings here. They come because of our union with Christ. This is great doctrine. It's a great truth that is being laid out here. We are united in Christ. United in His life, united in His death, united in His resurrection, united in His ascension, united once again when He returns. The believer comes to know God through Christ. Everything that is true about Christ is true about them. If you are united in Christ, everything that is true about Christ is true about you. We have every spiritual blessing that there is. Now, some of you remember uh, Drew Blackburn. He worked here for a, a while. Uh, he went back uh, and, and took a job, a, a professional job, as he, he says it's oil and gas. He says, yeah, I work in oil and gas. Now, here in Western New York, that doesn't mean a whole lot to us. Uh, but what he does is he goes out and he surveys land. He gets pop property, uh, copies of properties, and he looks through and, and wonders if there may be an opportunity there for an oil well to be put and that type of thing. And he... Uh, he, he kind of brokers the relationship. He never buys the land himself or he never puts an oil well in there himself. But he kind of brokers the relationship between the landowner and those who were trying to uh, drill for oil. And so in the early 1900s, there was someone doing something similar to this. And in Oklahoma, it started the oil rush in Oklahoma. There was a man who had a similar situation. He was an old man, <coughs> a poor man who lived on his property. And there was someone who approached him and said, would you be willing for us to just to assess and check and see if there would be any oil reservoirs here on your land? What turned out to be was the largest oil reservoir in the history of the United States of America up to that point, literally under this man's home on his property. He became a millionaire overnight. Now, you've got to think about this, though. Ultimately, he had no idea that that was in existence. He, he had no idea that those reserves were there. He was approached about it. 
He was asked about it, and eventually he found out that to be the case. But the day that he found that out did not change the fact that the previous day before, those oil reserves were there the day before, or the week before, or the month before, or 50 years before. They were always there. In a very similar way for you and for me, uh, your identity in Christ is that of a spiritual billionaire. Uh, Of all that Jesus has done for you, whether you recognize it or not, you have been made rich in Christ. Secondly, you are chosen in Christ. Verse 4, even as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before Him, in love He predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of His will. Verse 6, to the praise of His glorious grace, which He has blessed us in the Beloved. I have friends who have just completed an adoption. Uh, they'd gone to the Philippines and, and they literally got back last week and I sat down with lunch and, and ate with Matt and, and asked him some questions of like, what is it like? How is it going? What is this process like for you to adopt, to bring this child into your home which you have never uh, had there before? Does he fit in with everybody? Do the kids accept him and that type of thing? And he actually went back and he said, uh, you have to remember the, the, the questions that you were asked as you began the process. And he said really awkward questions about uh, where would you be willing to adopt from? Uh, what types of ailments would you be willing to adopt a child if they had this type of ailment? And to the specifics of if the child was missing a limb, would you still adopt them? Two limbs three limbs would you still adopt them and going through like the real specifics and he's saying in that process what happens is you start to realize what is the purpose of me adopting this child is it so that I can fill out my American family and feel good about it or is it that I can help this child and and know what's best and know what is uh, the very best thing that I can provide for them there's a gut check See, God had given them a child. You know, you and I who have, who have children, uh, you understand that before that child was ever born, you loved that child. Before that child ever existed, before they, were, they came into this world as, as a kicking, screaming, crying baby, before that they were a zygote. And, and at that point, you loved that zygote and you loved that zygote dearly. Those of you who don't have any kids, guys, eventually you'll be encouraged to read what to expect when you're expecting, and you'll learn what a zygote is. It's an important part of the process. But you love that child. How can you do that? How, how did Christ choose us before the little foundation of the world and say He chose us? But then we also read in Scripture that we're told that we have to choose Him. And so you need to know that there's, there's some tension there. There's some wrestling that happens there. Uh, theologically, there are two camps that start to divide themselves along these lines. And there's a Calvinist camp that talks about unconditional election, that God has elected and chosen each one of us. There's an Armenian uh, type of approach that says there's a free will. Well, we all get our free will. We get to choose for ourselves. And, and I'm going to tell you today that, that you need to understand the fullness of what's going on here, uh, but you will never understand the fullness of what is going on here. No theologian in the world can reconcile this. We love that child before we ever see that child, uh, yet that child is choosing, uh, we are choosing that child. We can't reconcile it. God does, and it's man's responsibility to know and understand, to repent, to turn from sin, and to trust in Jesus, and I just don't know how it works. Okay? And that's okay. Deuteronomy 29, 29 says this, The secret things belong to the Lord our God. 
God's got some secrets that he just doesn't allow us into. He doesn't tell us. But the rest of that verse says this. He says, the things that have been revealed belong to us and to our children. The things that have been made clear to us, it is important for us to share with our children. The next generation needs to hear that and know that and understand it. If he reveals it for us, it's good. We need to share it. We need to demonstrate it. We need to, to wrestle with it. It's for our children. If he doesn't, don't over-philosophize it. Don't push it too far. We just need to understand, somehow we have been chosen, we have been adopted as children of God. And it's our responsibility to repent and turn ourselves over to Him. How do we do that? Number three, redeemed in Christ. Redeemed in Christ. Verse 7, it says, In Him we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of His grace, which He lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight. Redemption is about having the price being paid, uh, a ransom that was used to buy back something or someone. Someone or something was in bondage, and someone had to come along and buy that back to pay that ransom. That's what you see in the book of Exodus. If you aren't familiar with that, go home, look it up on Netflix. You can watch Mo and the Big Exit, Veggie Tales. It'll give you all that you need to know for this truth. There had to be a price. The blood of the lamb had to be spilled. It had to be painted over the door frames. And in doing that, uh, God freed his people. He led them out from bondage in Egypt. We have been redeemed by Christ. Uh, we have been in bondage, but we are free of that. Our identification is now a free man, a free woman. You are no longer in Egypt. You have been freed of that because of the blood on the doorpost. You are no longer in sin and you are free because Jesus Christ, we talked about this last week, He died on the cross. He rose again for your sins and for mine. And because of that, you and I can move forward. We are free in Christ. It also says here that we are forgiven in Christ. We got to spend last week a few days uh, in, in the beach at South Carolina. And, and something that's just fun to do in the morning when you just walk on the beach and there's the sun is coming up and, and you just, the, the, the sand is hard because it's wet. If you get over in the soft stuff, it's because it's, it's dried out and you, like, you can't ride a bike or walk. It's, it's difficult. But if you walk right along that shore where the water's coming back and forth, I've done it with my wife or with your kids, and you hold their hand and you walk down through there, there's something pretty special about if you turn around and look back behind you. A lot of times just one wave will just come in and it goes back out. And literally there is, there is no evidence that you have been there before. As you walk down through that wave comes in, the wave goes out, and your footprints are no longer. And that is very much what it's like to be forgiven in Christ. That wave comes in, that wave of His redeeming grace, of what He has done on the cross for you and for me. It comes in, it washes in, it washes out, and there's no evidence. Whether or not you've got size 10.5 feet like mine or size 2.5 feet like my kids, and that is a 10.5 foot of sin or a 2.5 foot of sin, it doesn't matter. It gets washed away. And that's what forgiveness looks like in Christ. We are redeemed in Christ. Next one, His will is revealed in Christ. God's will is revealed in Christ. Number nine, making known to us the mystery of His will. Paul's acknowledging the fact that this is mysterious. It's tricky. There's pieces and parts here that we don't understand. According to His purpose, which He set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time. To do what? To unite all things in Him. Things in heaven and things on earth. 
There's the implication that things on earth are a little bit mixed up. There's the implication that things in heaven are mixed up. We know and understand, looking at Scripture, that there is a spirit world that is, is broken, is fallen apart. There are fallen angels, those who are working against. But it says all of that is united in who? In Jesus Christ. God is uniting, and we see throughout this entire book, and we'll see it as we go, He's uniting Jew and Gentile together as one in His body. And that has been His plan from the very beginning, from the Garden of Eden. Look at Adam and Eve in the garden. They are built in the image of Created in the image and likeness of God Himself. What color was the skin of Adam and Eve? We have no idea. Genesis 3.15, where we learn the seed of the woman is going to crush the head of the serpent, the enemy of God. He says, I am going to redeem my people. Fast forward, we see Abraham. I'm going to make you a great nation. This nation is going to do what? Is going to, this nation ends up being Israel. But the seed of Abraham was going to be played out through this nation of Israel. And what was going to happen? The Messiah, the promised one, the Christ was going to come and was going to do what? To bring together the Jew, the Gentile, and all the nations from every tribe and every tongue in this person, Jesus Christ. From the beginning, there was one man, God's Son. From the beginning, there was one plan for Him to come and redeem all nations. And from there, there is one church that He has been asked uh, to, to lead. This, this is the plan. It's way bigger than black and white. The people are from every tribe, every tongue, and every nation. He is bringing them together in Christ. Jesus Christ is the head of the church. Jesus is God's only Son. Jesus is the only way. The church is God's only plan. His will is revealed in Jesus Christ. Verse 11, eternal inheritance in Christ. Eternal inheritance in Christ. In Him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of Him who works all things according to the counsel of His will, so that we who were first to hope in Christ might be the praise to the praise of His glory. Your inheritance is ultimately this that you one day get to be in heaven with Jesus Christ. You will be reconciled with God and will his, with His people. You get Christ. That is your inheritance. You know Him and you know Him intimately. He knows you and one day you will be with Him face to face. We sing about that, of, of just the beauty of His face. That inheritance ultimately is where blessings will flow from. His people will be there, every tongue, every tribe, every nation. Today is just a choir rehearsal for what it's going to be like. And it's going to be so much better than it was today. Today was great, but it's going to be so much better than it was today. This is a rehearsal, a practice to be able to say, this is what it's going to be like to worship God all the time for eternity, day after day, morning after morning, evening after evening. Uh, today is our choir practice. We will worship together, unified as one, every tribe, every tongue, every nation. That is the purpose of what heaven is going to be like. Why? Because our inheritance, all of us, is Jesus Christ. We are unified in Him. When you think of heaven, when you think of that glorious day, many of you have lost loved ones. Is, is that glorious day, do you think about that loved one that you've lost or that, that person that you want to be reunited with? Or do you think of Jesus? Because it's in Jesus that you will be 
unified and united and brought back together. That loved one, you want to see them and I understand that, but really heaven is all about Jesus Christ. That is where the, the completeness is brought together because of who He is. That's our eternal inheritance in Christ. Lastly, guaranteed and sealed in Christ. Guaranteed and sealed in Christ. Verse 13. In Him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, believe in Him, were sealed by the promised Holy Spirit. Who promised that? Jesus Christ did. Verse 14, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of His glory. You have the hope of this glory because of the Holy Spirit moving and acting and, and, and causing you to respond. He has sealed you. That word has connotations of He has stamped you or He has tattooed you or He has written on you with permanent marker that can't be washed off. That's what the seal is. Hazel is eight years old now, my second daughter. Years ago, we went away for an evening, Aaron and I, we came back home and it became obvious she had fallen asleep on our bed. It wasn't in her little thing on the side. We'd, a lot of times we'd scoop her up and put her in there uh, afterwards after we came home. She had found a green permanent marker. We were staying in someone else's house and for some, you know, thank you Jesus, she didn't write on anything in that house. She didn't write on the walls, she didn't write on the pillowcase, she didn't write on the, the sheets, but she drew all over her own body. Head to toe, there was green permanent marker everywhere, especially upper upper lip, because she thought that green marker smelled fantastic. And she had no idea. We came in, and just look at this child covered in green permanent marker. The best that we could do was to take her to the pool the next day and use the chlorine to turn that green permanent marker into yellow permanent marker and take a little of the sting off of it. But it took a long time. The seal of the Holy Spirit, guaranteed and sealed in Christ, is so much better than permanent marker. You understand that, right? That seal, that stamp, that guarantee, it is so important we as Christ followers have this guaranteed inheritance through the Holy Spirit, not through anything that you have done or I have done or any way that we act or any way that we behave. It's because of who Jesus is. But how do you see the evidence of that? Let me ask this question. Can the church, this church, be found in Christ? Is there evidence of that seal? Is there evidence of that stamp? Is there evidence of that tattoo? Can this church be found in Christ? I can get into all the details of this today, but I believe there's a few steps that you can say. This can, these are the anticipated activities of one who follows in Christ's footsteps. Number one, that they be discovering intimacy with God that you and I on a daily basis would be looking to find ways to pray, to open God's Word. That would be a mark, a seal, that the Holy Spirit is guaranteed and sealed us in Christ. Secondly, we'd be releasing the fruit of the Spirit. 
that the fruit of the Spirit would be alive. It would be uh, so evident that we were loving one another and caring for one another and long-suffering with one another. That would be evidence that the Holy Spirit was alive and active in your life and in mine. That stamp would be there. That we are engaging in spiritual multiplication. That we are discipling others. That we are bringing those along who may not have grown up in the church or may not have had a long relationship with Jesus Christ. That there is a reproduction that is happening. Spiritual multiplication. That you and I are actualizing one's personal purpose. Purpose Driven Life was written years ago, but it has changed the lives of many. Uh, Are you living out the purpose that God has called you to? When He created you, when He thought of you before you were even born, He had an idea, He had a purpose for your life. Are you actualizing that? Are you living that out? Are you fulfilling that purpose? Are you mobilizing the grace story, the grace story, the story of Jesus Christ and what He has done and how He has changed your life and changed mine? Are you mobilizing that? And lastly, are you stewarding a prioritized life? Are you living your life in a way that is prioritized for things that God would prioritize? That's your time, your talents, your treasure. Are you prioritizing those things in the way that Jesus wants you to prioritize those things? I believe that those are the stamps. Those are the ways that you know you are guaranteed and sealed in Christ. That's the evidence that the Holy Spirit is alive and active in your life. So the last question I want to ask you today is, can your hearts be found in Christ? So first the question was, can the church be found in Christ? But can your heart be found in Christ? If it can be, there should be assurance. And looking at these, these verses this morning, there should be assurance because salvation is from God and is of His work and is accomplished by God. And you can be sure that what God starts, He will finish. <coughs> what God starts, He will finish. Jesus gives the parable of leaving the 99, the shepherd who leaves the 99 and goes and finds the other sheep. Whose responsibility is it for those sheep to get back in the pen? It's the shepherd's responsibility. You can be assured that what God begins, he will finish. And he is going to bring those back to the fold that he believes have strayed away. Secondly, there should be strength and hope that we can have victory over every area, again, because of who Jesus is. Imagine waking up in an ambulance this afternoon. And the person, the EMT, tells you, he says, you've been in a bad car accident. Uh, Actually, you're on life support right now. But it's okay. We've got it under control. Uh, You're going to be fine. Your only responsibility in that moment is to consent. Say, okay, thank you. Thank you for saving me. The other option is what? To start pulling off the tubes and start trying to get out of the ambulance. How foolish would that be? And it shows you that ultimately if your heart is found in Christ, you should have strength and hope that He's the one in charge. He is the one who is taking care of you. There should be humility as well. Using that same situation, you need to, to know and understand that, that God, that you're in this mess on your own, but God is the one who's going to pull you out of it. God is the one who's going to fix what is going on in your life. And in doing that, remember that God selects the foolish to confound the wise. God selects the foolish to confound the wise. So if you feel like, man, God got a really good deal when he picked me. Remember, God selects the foolish to confound the wise. You were at the top of the foolish list and God went after it. Just so that he could do what? Be glorified above all else. 
But most of all, there should be boldness. You should be able to walk out of here today and share the gospel to every man, every woman, and every child, knowing that if God has called that child to himself, he will make it happen. That there will not be a blunder, that you messed something up, that you said the wrong thing, that you approached things the wrong way, you handed out the wrong sheet of paper, you invited them to the wrong church. If I had just done those things, then maybe they would accept Christ. There should be boldness in your heart. You should be able to go out and say, no, this is God's job. He has just asked me to be the conduit to make it happen. So that's where we stand this morning. As we look at this, we should see that we are guaranteed and sealed in Christ because of what He has done, not because of anything that we have done. And so to celebrate that, to demonstrate that in a public way, we are going to take communion this morning. So those of you who are helping with communion in the band, you guys can come up as well. We're going to share a meal together. A meal that demonstrates what it means to be in Christ. As you are familiar with 1 Corinthians, Jesus says, take this body which is broken for you or, or uh, drink from this cup as you proclaim the Lord's death until He comes. And in doing that, in doing that, you are responding to the implication that you are in Christ. And so as we look at Ephesians today, I pray that that has come true in your heart and in your life, that you would feel challenged to what God is saying to you here today. But you'd also look for that seal, that stamp, that is, as this body comes together, as we share a meal together as a family, that we are doing so because we are each acknowledging the fact that Jesus is living in you and in me.